Let's all approach God together. Most Holy Father, we assemble this evening as members of your Son's body, thankful and appreciative for the great sacrifice that was given to cleanse us from sin, to give us that hope of life eternal with you at the end of this life. Father, we do look forward to being with you. And while we're here, Father, we enjoy the company of fellow Christians, brothers and sisters of like precious faith. We are grateful, Father, for this local body. We are grateful, Father, for the faithfulness of its members. We give thanks, Father, for the leadership that we have that has maintained this group, strengthened this group, and helped expand the borders of your kingdom here. Bless them, Father, with wisdom and strength to continue battling for the truth, to continue guiding this flock as we seek to do your will and to bring your truths to those we see every day. Bless us, Father, as we continue through the service tonight. Let us worship you as you wish it to be. Let us give you the truth in our hearts, Father, and worship you in spirit. Let us always be thankful, Father, that we have your word, that we have it preserved through time, that we might read and study and learn the lessons that you have put before us. Forgive us when we fail you, Lord. Bless us with that great forgiveness we know comes through your Son and the relationship that we have through him. Be with us always. Protect us from harm. Protect us from the evil one. Guard our hearts and our spirits, Father, and help us always to keep you first in our lives. For these things we ask humbly in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our text tonight is in the sixth chapter of Jeremiah, starting in verse 16. Jeremiah 6, 16. It reads, Stand in the ways and see, and ask for the old path, where the good way is, and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk in it. This is one of the dramatic passages of the Old Testament. And it's a climax of an appeal from the prophet Jeremiah beginning in the first chapter of his prophecy. But it also represents the departures in the apostasies of man of all ages. Unfortunately, the story of mankind in the course of divine religion, both Jewish and Christian, is one in, of rebellion against God's word and God's way. And so to start off with in the lesson tonight, I'd like to look at the history of God's dealing with man. From Eden in Genesis 3 to Babel in Genesis 11, we have the record of mutiny among men against the authority of God. In Genesis 1, we have the beginning of history with the creation of man. Genesis 3, we have his fall and expulsion from the garden. In Genesis 6, we have the story of the universal apostasy in Noah's days. And in Genesis 11, we have the record of the second universal apostasy that was threatened in the episode of the tower in the city of Babel. When man first broke through the restrictions of divine law and was separated from God, the flaming sword was placed in the garden. And this was a symbol, of course, of divine justice. 
But right by that flaming sword was the cherubim, the symbol of grace and mercy. It meant while man was expelled from the garden and separated from God because of sin, it was not without remedy. The unfolding scheme of redemption had its beginning there. The blood of the Old Testament began its flow from the altars, and it did not cease until it merged with the crimson flow of the blood of Jesus Christ. In Genesis 6, we have the record of rebellion against God in the universal apostasy. It was necessary for God to purge the world of its wickedness and start the race again. And of course, he did this by the great flood. Then in Genesis 11, we have the story of the second universal apostasy. Man in rebellion against God attempted to throw off the government of God and the religion of God and establish their own religion. They devised a tower, which they called the Tower of Babel, which was designed to reach heaven. And I don't think the men of that day could be foolish enough to think that they could build a tower that could, could actually reach heaven. But the purpose of it was to symbolize their strength of their own human government and rebellion against God. The designs of these men were frustrated by the confusion of the different languages. It was then that God found it necessary to establish a median through which he could operate. And in the 12th chapter of Genesis, we read of the call of Abraham. Because of apostasy and idolatry, God could not use the whole race of man to accomplish his purpose in the unfolding plan of redemption. So he established a special median. And out of the loins of Abraham, he established a special race. And out of that special race, he organized a special nation, the nation of Israel. The purpose of the nation was to furnish God with a median of operation through which he could culminate a scheme of redemption to bring man back to God. That was the whole purpose of the nation of Israel. And when time came for Israel to be terminated because that purpose had been fulfilled, their nation ceased never to exist the same way again. The whole history of Israel was a history of sin, uh, rebellion, disobedience. And so looking back at our text in Jeremiah 6.16, the prophet pleaded, Stand in the ways and see, and ask for the old path, where the way is good. Of course, we know Jeremiah was a, a young man, and he had a tender heart. And God had assigned him a very difficult task. In the beginning, he saw the finest system of natural religion that the world had ever knew. But it collapsed, and he saw the fires die out from beneath the altars. But he gathered those live coals from the altars into his heart, and he carried a fiery message from God to the nation of Israel. Now, to explain this problem, I'd like for us to look at, at three points quickly. First, God teaches man his way. In Hosea 14.9, the prophet said, Who is wise? Let him understand these things. Who is prudent? Let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous walk in them, but the transgressors stumble in them. The second point is God forbids man's way. Jeremiah 10.23, O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself, it is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. And the third point is that God curses perversion 
of his word. So Galatians 1, 6-8. I marvel that you are turning so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. The apostle said another gospel, and when he said this, he just simply meant a different message that was not the gospel at all. They had turned from the gospel to something that was not the gospel, and he tells us why in verse 7. In verse 7 it reads, But there are some who trouble you who want to pervert the gospel of Christ. A perverted gospel ceases to be the gospel. Perversion means an improper mixture. It's not necessary to take anything out of it. You just put something in that's not part of it, and then it's perverted. So look at a loaf of bread. The same thing applies. It's not necessary to take anything out of making a loaf of bread, but if we put something that shouldn't be there into that bread, it's perverted. Bread is the power through the natural law to help the hunger and sustain physical man. But that power can be destroyed without removing anything from it by an improper mixture. For an example, put a tablespoon of arsenic in a loaf of bread and it will destroy its power to sustain man. Take a glass of water, which is nature's way to quench thirst, and put a handful of salt in that water and it destroys the power to quench that thirst. When men inject into the gospel the mixtures of doctrine of error, it destroys the saving power. It is an improper mixture and it is a perversion. And Jeremiah in Jeremiah 23, 36 accused the false prophets of his days of perverting the words of God. And he said, for you have perverted the words of the living God. And God said he would punish that man. So, so far we've, we've traced the, the story and the history of mankind in the course of religion. And these Old Testament illustrations have been used only as approach to the subject tonight of the Flower Mound Church of Christ, how we got to this point. The true church is identified in the New Testament. The church is mentioned in the Old Testament in type and prophecy. The Old and the New Testaments represent together the continuation of divine revelation. But we're not under the Old Testament. But that does not mean that we don't believe the Old Testament. If someone believes that we do not believe the Old Testament, we should ask that person if he or she believes that we are still under the Old Testament law. Or do they believe that it's been taken away? And if they say that they they do not believe the, the Old Testament, that we're still under that, then we should say, well, really, you don't believe the Old Testament. Because in Jeremiah 31, if you want to turn there, uh, it's going to make the following point. Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31 through 34. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, 
though I was a husband to them, saith the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with them in the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquities and their sins I will remember no more. Amen. Now the Hebrews writer in chapter 8, after quoting Jeremiah, he, he gives more meaning to this passage in verse 13 when he says, A new covenant he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. It's pretty plain. The Old Testament's been fulfilled, and now we're under a new covenant. And under the new covenant, Christ built his church, Matthew 16, 18. And looking at his church during the course of history, there are five words which designate these periods. And those are the words perfection, departure, apostasy, reformation, and restoration. And these periods of time started in the New Testament and they go to our times today. The first period is perfection. God made everything in perfection when he created man. He made man exactly how he wanted him to be. Adam was God's model. He was the perfect man. But in the process of time, because he was a free moral agent, Adam broke the divine laws and was separated from God. In contrast, the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians that God created a new man. And that new man that he's talking about is called the church. And God made the church perfect. Its members were not perfect, but God created a perfect institution. He formed it exactly how he wanted it. But as the degeneration of Adam, departure came in New Testament times. 1 Timothy 4.1 now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. Next there was a period of departure. The departures were gradual and they did not come overnight. The departures were first in organization. The divine arrangement of a congregation is very simple. It's elders, deacons, and members. As time went on, one elder presided over several churches. Then you had bishops over bishops and then we had the papal system. The, the next part of the, depo the uh, departure was, was doctrinal. And you take baptism, for an example. Bap uh, they had a sprinkling that took the place of immersion. And then departures were gradual in organization, doctrine, and worship. And as history relates to the developments between the 6th century and the 16th century, there were 1,000 years of apostasy. And from the 11th to the 16th century, that period's called the Dark Ages. The Bible was taken away from the people and they were taught that they could not understand it, that it had to be interpreted for them. And therefore, a barrier was erected between the people and God's word. But there was one young man who entered a German institution to prepare himself for the duties of a priest, only to discover this old, dusty Latin Bible and he read it. And in reading of that old Bible, he found the institution to which he had attached himself had departed completely from its teachings. That's right. 
He severed his connection with the monastery and he went out preaching reforms. He did not intend to leave what was then called the church. He only wanted to reform it. But every reformation has failed. There has never been a successful reformation in all of religious history. When men have tried to reform, the result of their efforts have always been the emergence of some other denominational organization. Now, these men, they were headed in the right direction, and to be very fair to them, they were coming out of centuries of darkness. But the results of their work turned into Protestant denominationalism. From the efforts of these men who led the Reformation came the plea for restoration. The restoration plea came from the words of the New Testament, if any man speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. The whole restoration concept is wrapped up in the statement, where the Bible speaks, let us speak. Where the Bible is silent, let us be silent. But people say out of all this talk of restoration, how can we identify anything? How can we know if, if it's the church that Ephesians 1, 22 and 23 say that Christ is the head of? How can we know that it's the, the, the church, the one body that Ephesians 4.4 4 talks about or that Christ, the church that Christ said he was going to build? I mean, how do we know that these are fair questions? And now let's, let's go ahead and answer them. So everybody knows how to identify an automobile that's lost by its make, model, and number. Well, we have the make, model, and number of the New Testament church and it's on record. It's a registered institution and it can be identified, but we have to go to the New Testament to do it. We cannot identify it by human authority and documents, disciplines, and creeds. There's only one book that identifies the true church and that is the New Testament itself. So the first identifying mark is origination. And in origination, we look at the word seed. You plant a seed anywhere, and it produces after its kind. That's just how it works. You take the New Testament to any land on earth where the church is not known. You teach it, and it will produce exactly what it produced in New, in New Testament days. The next mark of identification is organization. Here we have the word congregation. The simplicity of the organizations, just elders, deacons, and members. Next is the word doctrine, and beside the word doctrine, we just write gospel. It takes the same thing to make a Christian now as in New Testament times. There is no other means, there's no other method. Peter said in Acts 2.38, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 41, then those who gladly received his word were baptized. In that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those being saved. The only way to be added to the church in the New Testament times was to believe, repent, confess, and to be baptized, and there's no other way now. Amen. The next identifying mark is worship, and here we have the word pattern. There can be no additions to the pattern set forth in the scriptures. The next mark which to identify the church is terminology or names. 
Here we put the word Christian. In Acts 11.26, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. If the disciples were called Christians then, why should they not be called Christians now? We should call Bible things by Bible names. And the final mark of identification is creed. And we simply put, put beside that the word Bible. A human creed is a formulation, interpretation of what the Bible says. The divine creed is what it says. We've named six identifying marks. Origination, organization, doctrine, worship, name, and creed. And if we're right in origination, if we're right in organization, if we're right in doctrine, if we're right in worship, if we're right in name, and we're not right in creed, we cannot be the wrong church. Amen. But if we're wrong in origination, if we're wrong in organization, doctrine, wrong in worship, wrong in name, and wrong in creed, we cannot be the Lord's church. That represents the make, model, and number of the New Testament church. It's just that simple. It's a matter of identification. So that brings us to today. Um, it, it all started, I'm going to paraphrase here, in Flower Mound with two guys. And basically, I don't know who said what, but one guy said, um, hey, you want to plant a church in Flower Mound? Another guy goes, it sounds good. Another one said, let's do it. That was Michael and Myron. I know I paraphrased there. But <clears throat> that was back in, in 2013. And so the Flower Mound Church of Christ, there was a lot of planning, vision. Other, other families came together. Uh, just a, a lot of work came into it. And the, the church here first met in October 2013. And we've got our three-year anniversary next month. And, and, and when looking at, at the Lord's Church here in Flower Mound, the, the, the opportunity for this work is obvious. I mean, <clears throat> through Bible studies to date, 40 souls have been added to Christ. In the spiritual lives, I, I know I speak for myself, and, and I know for several of you, have been enhanced. You know, <clears throat> common with doing the Lord's work, you know, with, with things going good, bringing people to Christ and, and our spiritual lives growing, you know, the, the devil's going to gonna interfere. And, and that, that's just, that's just going to happen. I mean, you look, look at Nehemiah when he was tasked at rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. He had naysayers and negative influences trying to detract him from the work. That, that's just how the devil works when, when you're doing good. But, but the key to these situations is to handle them in a Christ-like manner. And, and if, if it'll happen again, and, and if we just remember to handle it like Christ would handle it, we'll be just fine. But that being said, you know, we believe that the love and the spirit of the congregation, the doctrinal practices and the focus on bringing the lost to Christ is pleasing to God in the place that's going to help us, our families, and others reach our goal spending eternity with God. You know, the opportunity we have here to establish the Lord's church in Flower Mound for the future generations or until the, the Lord returns is exciting. And what, what I like so much about the work here is that every single one of you 
Every person is important to the work here, no matter what the age is or the gender. Everybody's important and, and appreciated, and, and, it, and it goes down from the little ones all the way up to the oldest, and, uh, and that's just great. And so, you know, we, <clears throat> we not too long ago, you know, we're, we're, we're outgrowing this place, and we're very blessed to, to be able to worship here. And when, when we were looking, you know, for properties and, and we found one and, and, I, and I was talking to Lena about, um, you know, some of the, um, the hurdles that, that we were facing on that. <clears throat> she reminded me of David. And she said, you need to look at this like David. And I said, what do you mean? Because I know she, she doesn't like David because he was a womanizer. But... <laughs> <laughs> But you need to look at this like David. And she said, do you remember when, when he went out to face Goliath and, and he was ready to take him on and, and, and the naysayers came in and, and you know, telling him why he couldn't do it or whatever. And he said, he said, I faced a bear and a lion and God was with me and God's going to be with me against, against this giant. And, and she said that that's the approach that we need to take, you know, and and when I look at the results, I mean, to, to, to get a property like like we got in Flower Mound that that fits our, our ability to to obtain that property and to pay for it. I, I mean, I, I know Donnie and I could never have imagined that that it worked out like that. And. <clears throat> And so now we have this property, and, 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 and we, we have one of our deacons who works for one of the, the world's best engineering construction company, and he's the cream of the, the crop in that company that's going to oversee things going forward as far as, you know, get, getting our location. And, of course, that's Greg Dasher. You know, we've got Dustin Crawford that... that has volunteered to take care of the property and, they, and other people will, will help him, you know, to keep it manicured. Uh, and that's especially important now that Karen Swan has donated a sign and we've got future home of Flower Mound Church of Christ with our name on the property. You know, we want it to look good. And, and so now, now we're, we're, we're established. But, you know, the, the, the other point coming back was when I was having lunch with Brother Stan and, and he made a point to me that, that really resonated about the work here and that is that don't limit God right. we should not limit God you know in, in some thoughts you know that, that I've had it's like let, let's get to a certain point and then, and then we'll do this well, well, thinking like that is, is, is limiting God let, let's just focus on doing his will, his way, and work hard at it, and let's see where it goes. Because God doesn't have limits. And, and, and by limiting God, we're limiting our faith. And I, I think that was very wise counsel, and, and uh, that, will always, that point will always stay with me. But, you know, when, when I look at that, and I look at our opportunity, and, and I look at all, all of you out here, um, you know, I, I've read most of Louis Lamar's books, and he has a saying in there that 
talking about somebody giving them a compliment, that there's somebody to ride the river with. And this group right here is somebody to ride a river with. We, can, we have accomplished a lot, and we will accomplish a lot, as long as we give the glory to God and we keep doing it His way. Amen. <clears throat> so with that, I'd like to conclude with, with a story. There's an incident that occurred many years ago in connection with the gold rush in California that was back in the, the 1849s. And a group became separated from a party and thought that they would die for lack of water. And all at once, they walked upon a sparkling running stream of water. And they rushed to it, thinking that their thirst would be satisfied. But when they drank of the water, it was brackish and bitter. And they sat beside the stream in disappointment. But one of the number went up the stream, and they came to a fountain from which the stream was flowing. And when he drank of that water, the fountain was sweet and refreshing. And he wondered how a fountain so sweet could send forth water so bitter. And it led him to examine the surrounding terrains. And below the fountain he saw side streams pouring into the mainstream. And the side streams were bringing into the mainstream that bitter and brackish elements. So he went back to his party and he took them up to the fountain where they drank and they were satisfied. How closely does this illustration illustrate the conditions of religion today? There are many people standing on the outside looking on and they ask the question, what is Christianity? And when they see the discord and the divisions that exist in the religious world over human creeds and denominational theology, they say to us, if that's Christianity, its waters are brackish and bitter. We need to go to them, and we need to say, my friend, you're drinking too far below the fountain. Let me show you the fountain. This fountain is the word in my hand. It's the Bible. It's the word of God. And it's the fountain of all truth. And when we drink of its waters, they're sweet and life-giving. You know, our aim is to bring people to the source, to the Bible. And our mission here, thank you, Richard, is to bring one more soul to Christ. And so at this time, if you're subject to the gospel invitation, we want to invite you to come as we stand together and sing. Hear the sweet voice of Jesus say, Come unto me, I am the way. Let's pray. Our great God and Father in heaven, we approach your throne of grace and father we just give you thanks for this day for the lord's day and for how special it is to us to us father we're grateful for the worth the worship with which we were able to participate today for everyone who participated we give you thanks but father mostly for the opportunity to adore you we say thank you father we pray that as has been expressed already twice tonight that what has been done has been in harmony with your will that it it was pleasing to you that we've truly worshipped in spirit and in truth. And Father, we just want to thank you for the opportunity that you give us not only to worship, but to work. And as we depart this place and we think about the opportunities that we'll have in this week, we just pray your blessings upon us. 
Let us shine as lights in, in a wicked and perverse generation. Father, lead those who are hurting to us. May we have the eyes of a minister. May we be looking and searching for those who, who are in desperate need of you as we all are. And Father, we're grateful for the children that you blessed us here with as parents, as members of this church, as the opportunity we've had to, to help these young people develop. And as many of them have gone on now to institutions of higher learning and want to expand their thinking, we pray your blessings upon them. But more than that, Father, we pray that they'll be expanded in their understanding of your will and in their work for you. Just continue to bless them, keep them safe. And when possible, Father, bring them back to us. We're certainly grateful for Jesus. We're grateful for his sacrifice. We're grateful for this day where we can remember it. May it motivate us throughout the week until we come together again. It's in Jesus' name we offer this prayer. Amen.